Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Hands up who gets a little intimidated by where to start when assessing or treating the pelvic floor. Yeah, me too. Well, this week on the JOSPT Insights podcast, Dr. Sarah Haig, pelvic health specialist from Entropy Physiotherapy and Wellness in Chicago, joins us to share her approach to pelvic health and the pelvic floor. Dr. Haig's Twitter bio says she likes to discuss stuff over a drink, so why not make a cup of tea or pour yourself a glass of your favourite and settle in for clinical gems from a specialist clinician and educator? Thanks for joining the JOSPT Insights podcast, Sarah. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to chatting all things pelvic health today. Can we start by talking about where you start with a pelvic floor or a pelvic health assessment? Usually it's going to start with getting the history and kind of the subjective complaints that a person might be seeking help for. Usually I introduce myself. And then I'll open it up with just asking them to tell me a little bit about the issues that they're having so that I can better choose my questions after that. Plus, it gives them a chance to share what they want to share. A lot of the issues people come to me with are related to pelvic pain, difficulty with intercourse, urinary issues like incontinence, or perhaps bowel issues. And um, none of those are usually (laughs) really easy to talk about. If they're feeling comfortable telling me about one or like the main complaint or the complaint their doctor sent them for, I can start framing my questions around that. So kind of explaining. So you're having urinary issues just to check and see because of the anatomy and how everything's related. Are you having any issues with sexual function? So by kind of trying to make sure we're covering all of the pelvic function, then it at least gives them a window of opportunity to go, well, since you're asking let me tell you about this. So I I start very general to kind of get their current complaints and then we kind of go back through the history. And Sarah, what are the key pieces of information that you're looking for from your assessment to then guide the next steps in, in developing your treatment planning? So then once we have the history and, and, and what they're there for is to do like the physical assessment. And with that, The pelvis is kind of right there in the middle, attached to the spine, attached to the legs. It's involved in a lot of daily activities. So I would say most people, most PTs, most physios would feel fairly comfortable with like a lumbar screen, a hip screen to kind of just check it out, you know, from a pain aspect, from an orthopedic standpoint, make sure all of that is working as it should. The next, really the the only muscles like in the pelvis are that pelvic floor. And that can be an area where a lot of people start to get a little bit either lost or squeamish. For me, after we get the the information as to what's wrong, and it's, you know, if there's stuff like pain, urinary incontinence, other pelvic functional issues, there's probably something happening with the pelvic floor. So I'd want to assess the pelvic floor if, if at all possible. So in person, the way I would do a pelvic floor exam is... My instructions to the people are to, you're going to disrobe from the waist down, 
lie on the table comfortably. If it's a female on their back, males, typically I'll have them lie on their left side and cover up so that you're comfortable. And then starting with an external assessment to kind of look at tissues, make sure tissues are healthy. And honestly, you can tell if there's a sore or a red spot or something that might need medical attention. And then you ask them to move their pelvic floor. So to contract their pelvic floor, see if it moves. And that'll start to give us a little bit of information. And this is, the external exam is kind of what I describe as, it's like my middle option for pelvic floor assessment. There's one where I don't touch you and you keep your clothes on. And there's one where we do internal. So for this, to just visualize if the muscles are moving or not. Because like any other muscle, the pelvic floor should contract and then it should relax. And then a little bit of palpation. And again, depending on what their complaints are, palpating kind of the perineal area just to make sure sensation is intact, but also to identify any areas of discomfort or sensitivity. So that would be, like I said, kind of my second level pelvic floor exam if they were, were willing to just see, is the pelvic floor contracting or relaxing? Because if it's not contracting or relaxing, or you can't tell if it's doing that, doing Kegels or pelvic floor exercises forever probably won't make much of a difference until we know that they can do it right and they know that it's what to do. Um, And then as long as they consent, I would do an internal exam. So on females, it could be vaginal or rectal. And then on males, we only have one option and do it rectally. The way I describe it is that it's a bit like, a. it's it's probably the strangest exam you'll ever have. (laughs) Because a lot of people, if you're a male, you've perhaps been for a prostate check of some sort. That's not what I'm doing. For females, you've been to the gynecologist perhaps, and the speculum, I say the speculum pushes everything I'm interested in right out of the way. So then we start to, we start like any other MSK exam, we're going to palpate and we're kind of feeling the way I would describe it is pressure. If it's too much pressure, let me know, but weird pressure is kind of normal. But if it's uncomfortable in any way, let me know. Um, Cause I should either stop doing it and change my technique, or we should work on figuring out why that's tender or it doesn't feel good. So palpating gently, one, looking for any reproduction of symptoms, especially if pain is one of their complaints. And then we get into the pelvic floor function. So again, really assessing that muscle. And the way I explain it to my patients, when I do an internal exam, like the pro, I feel like people should know the pros and cons to each test they take medically. So when, like for the first part where we're doing it externally, I said exactly what I said earlier. So I'll say, I can tell you if it's contracting and if it's relaxing after the contraction, and that's about it. And that's, that's good. If we do the internal exam, I can start to give you some more information about how strong you are, what your endurance is like, what that relaxation is like, what the coordination is like. Because the nice thing when you're actually palpating the pelvic floor muscles, you can pay way more attention to what are they doing with their shoulders and their breath and their face, perhaps. So you can really make sure that they're getting the right muscles and doing it well. And during that assessment, I feel their pelvic floor function. So their contraction, their relaxation. But then I really like to ask them how they thought they did. One of the reasons for this is that a lot of people don't think they're doing it right, but are actually doing quite well, or they think they're rock stars. And actually they're not quite getting the right things. So I like to know their perception before I tell them my observation. For folks who maybe haven't had specialist 
pelvic floor or pelvic pelvic health training, what are some tips that you would share if they've got someone that they've been working with and starting to think, hmm, I'm wondering whether we do need to think about pelvic floor here and, and where do I kind of start off to get some information about whether perhaps I need to refer you to or refer the person who I'm working with to a pelvic floor specialist? Um, I would say, and again, this is mostly my experience speaking, is that if there are hip or low back issues that aren't resolving as expected. Um, so, you know, you're doing all of the things, you know, the, your client is doing all of the things that you ask and, um, and things just aren't quite progressing like you'd like. I think that's a great time to phone a friend. I um, mean, it's my favorite when I get a call from someone who's like a primarily orthopedic therapist and they're like, can you just take a look? And sometimes what the answer is, is we rule the pelvic floor out and we're like, you know, pelvic floor is doing well. This is not the issue. Or it's like, Mm -hmm. So there's some stuff and then work together to really work out. I'm thinking of one person in particular that someone asked me about and I saw them for an exam and really they had a pelvic floor that couldn't let go. And then when I, you know, discussing the, the plan of care where they were doing tons of core work, tons of bracing. So then it was kind of finding that sweet spot of how can, how can you keep moving towards those goals without causing these issues in the pelvic floor? Sarah, I've heard you share tips about assessing um, pelvic floor function by palpating around the ischial tuberosity. Could you share that tip? Because I, I wonder if that might be really helpful for folks working day to day in orthopedics and sports practice might be a good one to have kind of in their back pocket. If there's anyone out there who's comfortable palpating um, like a hamstring origin um, or anything like that, this is not too terrifying. <laughs> so so to do this, so you can absolutely palpate the pelvic floor externally through jeans are, are a bit of a challenge, but it's pretty easily done through tights. So you can have someone lying on their side or prone. There are some people who, who aren't, it can feel a little vulnerable to just lie prone while someone's palpating so much, so close to, to sensitive pieces. So you can lie on your side, prone or on your back and hook line, and then find the ischial tuberosity. Um, and really take the time to make sure that you find um, like the inferior aspect of it. And then just gently palpate your way around the medial aspect of it. I always tell people to please do it gently, mostly because the pudendal nerve is, is located right inside of that ischial tuberosity. I've had some people go, well, I was palpating around there and it was really tender and kind of zingy. I like people to not be scared of the pudendal nerve. It's there and it's normally sensitive. So much like if you like all of a sudden like whacked your ulnar nerve and you, and you had a funny feeling, it can happen if depending on how you're palpating here, gently press through the soft tissue so you can feel the bone. And once you feel like you're on the edge, then you're, you can just keep your hand straight and then give gentle pressure in the inferior to superior direction. And you, you'll fill the pelvic floor and then you ask the person to contract. And then much like if you were palpating any other muscle, you should feel the muscle kind of um, contract and bulge. Um, so it shouldn't feel like it's pushing your finger away, but you should feel kind of the, the kind of like the gathering of the muscle under your finger. And then when they relax, you should be able to feel that soften again. And then your fingers could sink in some more. Now let's talk about prescribing exercise. Cause I think this is something that comes up frequently so how do you start teaching pelvic floor exercises? 
knowing how to do them is the, is the very first step for sure. So that's sometimes the biggest, like the homework for the, like between visits is to just practice feeling confident that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. So I will generally, especially if people aren't comfortable taking their pants off or disrobing for an exam, we can absolutely do this in sitting. Sitting on a surface, but kind of like we're about to get our picture taken. So up nice and tall to contract the pelvic floor. Sometimes I have found it's a little bit like being dropped into a foreign country where you don't know the language. And like, you'll give your golden cue that works for everyone. And someone will be like, I don't understand. I would, I would start with just sitting up tall, comfortably breathing normally. What we're going to do is I'd like you to draw your pelvic floor up and in. And I don't really say like you don't want to pass gas or something like that anymore. So just draw your pelvic floor up and in and let it go. And then I would ask them, did you know what I meant? And also, what did you feel? So I usually just start with one contraction because what they should feel is basically something moving down below, like in the area where a bicycle seat would hit. If they're feeling that, so I don't go, did you feel something move down there? I go, did you feel anything move? And they'll find the words. And and as long as it's like in the direction of stuff down there moving, um, I'm like, okay, we're we're on the right track. Um, And then I'll have them play around a little bit just to kind of feel and kind of get in tune with the pelvic floor. So then I'll have them do the same thing, slouching. And I'll give a different example of a cue that I'm stealing from a patient. So for females, so what she said is like, what I'm imagining is my labia are church doors and they're closing. So really big doors on an old church. So imagine closing them and then letting, letting them go. And just seeing how that feels different. And um, with some EMG studies from Paul Hodges group, is like we know that if the pelvis is in a little bit more of an anterior tilt, there's a little bit more activity in the anterior part of the pelvis. So for people who are having incontinence, I usually try to, to get them to feel that. And then once you find a cue that works, and that when I do my contraction, like if you could see me, you shouldn't see my face change, you shouldn't see my breathing change, you shouldn't. If anything, I look tall and radiant. And you do. I can I can oh, well, see tall you. and radiant for sure. <laughs> um, the but as they do it, so once they have the contraction, then we need to decide what to do. And really, again, the pelvic floor is a skeletal muscle. So ideally, we will do a pelvic floor assessment. So we, if you can't hold a pelvic floor contraction for three seconds, giving you a ten second hold is a bit silly. It's okay to say that's our goal, but we need to also set people up for success. What I have started to do, especially when a pelvic floor assessment like via telehealth. So what I'll do instead of going like, how long should this be? Is before I make the home program is to ask them, okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to contract the pelvic floor. I'm going to have you just breathe in and out normally and then let it go. And again, and I ask them, what did you feel? I try to get away from the like 10 reps, not so much a strength and conditioning program yet, but rather um, kind of like a proprioceptive um, and coordination exercise. So like little bits, little bits often. Little bits often, exactly. Focusing on their pelvic floor. So I really recommend don't do it at stoplights. Don't do it when you're watching TV. Don't like just, can you take 30 seconds for yourself? Um, And that'll be way better than trying to like trudge through something while you're also trying to make dinner. 
bringing some of those principles of mindfulness, being really focused on what is it that you're doing rather than being distracted by the television or distracted by chopping the veggies for dinner, really focusing on the pelvic floor and and the contraction and the relaxation. Definitely. And one of the reasons why I've shifted, at least in the clinic, to do more of this, like, like these smaller tidbits, focusing, being mindful about it, is because a lot of times when I've tested pelvic floors that are weak, most of them got strong way faster than they should have if they were truly weak. So just knowing, oh, is that the muscle you mean? <laughs> and oh, that's how you do it. Their, their pelvic floor was there and it was actually pretty strong. Um, so, so I really do, again, take that time to make sure they know what they're doing. And then moving on to strengthening if, if their issues haven't subsided and their strength hasn't returned. Now, before we get on to progressing these exercises, can we talk a little bit about what happens if someone can't relax so they can feel the contraction, but they don't get the relaxation? It's a great question. So I can, I can speak to what I do. I used to take a much more manual therapy-based approach, like kind of manually trying to like relax those muscles. Um, but what I was experiencing with my patients is if it worked, it would work for like a bit and then it would really go back to, to where it started. So now the approach is really, um, again, lots of teamwork. And really with the patient driving it is helping them one, can they, can they feel a difference when we do things? So if I do do something that's a little bit more passive, can they feel it? And does it change anything for them? And then figure out, can they do a contract, relax, and does that help? Or can they do, again, just some mindfulness, some visualization, and does that recreate that feeling? But then also the pelvic floor is, it's tricky for a muscle, I think, just because you can't see it. If your shoulders are kind of crunched and you know, it's like, okay, can you look in a mirror and let them go? You can't really look in the mirror and really tell if your pelvic floor is not relaxing. And there's nothing that makes people relax less than going, can you relax some more? Especially when you're not, you're like, what do I do? Um, so actually then I'll move into more breathing and abdominal mobility. So sometimes just a nice tummy stretch and breathing, you know, when that elongates the pelvic floor is really integrated with, you know, the transversus muscle. And just if we can unclench the abs, a lot of times the pelvic floor will follow suit. Now let's come back to progressing the exercises. Are you starting these exercises in sitting, in standing? Where do you start? And then how do you move to more everyday type activities? I typically start in sitting. Um, I used to start people in supine a lot more, but to be perfectly frank, a lot of people don't have issues in, in supine <laughs> and it can be a little bit more challenging because it's gravity eliminated. You can't feel it as much as say, if you're sitting on a chair and getting some of that tactile cue, some, you, you feel it move a little more. As far as like practicing good old fashioned Kegels where you're gonna like contract and maybe hold for 10 seconds and let go. Once we get into the more of the strengthening aspect of things, I'm sitting or standing, but I like to have them do it in both so they can feel that difference. And then as far as progressing further than that, personally, I don't typically use vaginal weights. I know a lot of people do in their practices. So that's one way to progress is to add weight. Um, but I like to get people getting back into what they want to be doing faster. We, we kind of go functionally from there. 
that we do it like we would for a strength and conditioning program. It takes time. We might see some changes, but we're looking, we're looking for the longer, like eight to 12 weeks to really see the results. So pelvic floor exercises will strengthen your pelvic floor. That's good. It won't necessarily translate over into all the coordination you need for all of those crazy things you want to do, like dancing and trampolining and all of those things. So once we know we have a good, solid, strong pelvic floor, but we're still having maybe some leakage issues during activities, then we kind of go more activity specific. So once you really work on the strength, if you're not seeing the changes you want um, in those functional activities, it's really good to look at the activity specifically and see what can be altered without necessarily kegeling on purpose all the time. And what happens when you have someone that you've been working with and she's saying, look, I'm doing all of the exercises, I'm working really hard, but I've hit a wall. I'm, you know, it's, it's just not working how I want it to. I'm not reaching the goals. I'm still leaking when I'm running or, you know, whatever it is. Um, one thing we want to take a look at is then kind of go back to the pelvic assessment and like really make sure, is this pelvic floor as strong as we thought it was? Is it as coordinated as we, as we thought it was? Um, and make sure that we've done everything we can there. When it comes to leaking, another component for some women is like um, urethral instability or pelvic organ prolapse. In some cases, a really good pelvic, a really good, strong, coordinated pelvic floor can help mitigate that. But sometimes the pelvic floor, for whatever reason, isn't enough. So then if they're really frustrated, oh, the other thing we would check is time. Um, another thing that I've really seen, especially with my postpartum moms, um, is 12 weeks seems like an eternity. And then they start getting back into their activities and and really everybody wants to be better right away, which I totally understand. But there's still time that, that like we should be working on it. And if you plateau for very long, yes, we need to look more into it. But also sometimes just looking at the time frame and making sure we're acknowledging physiology and physiological processes of healing and recovery. So if time has passed, if they're working so hard, and if your brain is out of ideas as a therapist as to what to do, um, then that's when you, um, you know, we call on our medical colleagues to, um, well, actually, depending on the part of the world you're in, there are things like pessaries, which offers a passive support to tissues, which can be really helpful in stress incontinence for some women, especially during more strenuous activity. So pessaries are, are an option. Surgery is an option. Sarah, let's wrap up our chat by talking a little bit about how you monitor progress. What would your top tips be for clinicians to monitor pelvic floor health and, and monitor an exercise progression program? To put it simply, I would ask the patient. So really tying it back to, to their goals. Are they being met or are they not? You know, if they were leaking on runs and now they're not, I do think that if their symptoms are resolving, then it does stand to follow that something is working better. So I I do base a lot of it, especially now that we're on telehealth in so many cases, that if their complaints or their symptoms are diminishing and then resolving completely, this is great. If nothing is changing, these are the times where if it's been primarily telehealth, I'll, I'll reassess to make sure that, again, we haven't missed anything and that they are doing what they think they're doing with their pelvic floor, if it's a pelvic floor specific issue. 
Aside from speaking with patients and talking about symptoms and how symptoms are changing and function is changing, are there any questionnaires or any other ways that you would recommend folks think about monitoring progress? So there are standardized questionnaires. There are actually quite a few. And I I, I would recommend that people who are interested in doing this is to look up for a questionnaire that fits their practice. So what I mean by that is that there are some questionnaires out there that tend to ask way more questions about pelvic function than than you might need. So there are simple questionnaires about urinary incontinence. Um, There are questionnaires that are very specific to females and different pelvic issues there. There's a great new male pelvic pain questionnaire that is out. So you can absolutely choose one of these questionnaires and, and have it at the beginning. And then when you're like, let's do a status check to see if there is change on there. Um, I have changed around the ones I have used because I had patients getting very annoyed answering questions that didn't pertain to their issues or their body parts. So I would encourage people if they would like that to to make sure that they they they're aware of a couple of them that are there so they can pick them for the right patient. Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on JOSPT Insights and share your wealth of clinical expertise and research training on pelvic health and pelvic floor. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time.